Let's just continue in prayer for a moment. Father, I pray that you will open your word to us this evening. Give us hearts to receive it. Minds to understand it. And wills to live by it. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Imagine somebody coming out of the supermarket, having bought a very large, very nice bottle of champagne for a family celebration. It was rather expensive and only just affordable. And then he loses his footing, the bottle flies out of his hand, and that's that. Goodbye, rare treat for the family. All that's left is a heap of broken glass. A moment later, he sees a friend of his coming towards him, laughing. He was already upset, and now this, so he blows his top. The friend is stunned. He hadn't even noticed that there was anybody in front of him. He'd been looking into the distance, and he genuinely hadn't seen what had happened. The reason for his laughter was something funny that had happened earlier in the day. But his apologies and explanations are to no avail. The offence has gone deep. And when he rings later to try to put things right, the phone is slammed down. What began as a misunderstanding has become entrenched. He's now as angry as his friend. There's no way that he's going to forgive such injustice and writes his friend a strong letter telling him so. This is not leading anywhere good. As a society, I sometimes think we don't seem to believe overmuch in forgiveness. Heads must roll. We'd rather waste talent than give somebody a second chance. Perhaps that's because we see forgiveness as letting people off, allowing them to duck out of the consequences of their mistakes. And yet the creeds that we use in worship both declare that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Believe in can mean that we believe that it's possible, and it can also mean that we believe in the value of it. Forgiveness is a most basic human need. And so when we declare our faith using those creeds, we're saying that we know of a solution to an age-old problem. And that's one of the reasons why this letter to the Hebrews is so worth studying. You might not expect such an ancient document to resonate with our lives, with all its talk about practices that come from a different age and culture so far removed from our own. And we certainly have to work a bit to make sense of it, but it's worth the effort because what we find is pure gold. We believe in the forgiveness of sins, and Hebrews tells us why. 
So let's look up that passage from Hebrews 10 again. It's on page 1207. And I'm going to break this down into three bits. We'll think about the solution that didn't sort it, and then the solution that did, and then I'll draw out some implications for Christian living. And we'll take account of some of the ways in which we can misread certain parts of the text too. So first of all, the solution that did not sort out the problem. First of all, we're looking at verses 1 to 4 and verse 11. For hundreds of years, God's people had looked to the rituals of the temple in Jerusalem to deal with their guilt. Animal sacrifices burning them on the altar, that sort of thing. The sacrificial system was part of the Jewish law. And if you'd like to know more of the detail, it's to be found in the book of Leviticus and chapters 1 to 9. I'll leave you to read that for yourself. Sacrifices had to be offered by the priests, by those who had been authorized to do so. And they could only be offered in the right place, and animals given for sacrifice had to be perfect. So you had to be able to afford either to give one of your own animals or to pay for one. And being in the right place might be difficult too. It was all very well when God's people were in transit together from Egypt to the Promised Land and they had the tent of meeting with them, But once they were established in Israel and sacrifice eventually transferred to the temple in Jerusalem, it could be several days' journey to get there. How often would a poor person be able to do that? So there were practical problems with this system. But the writer to the Hebrews sees even bigger problems with it too. And so in chapter 10... He continues his discourse on the shortcomings of the Jewish sacrificial system. In verse 2, he tells us that sacrificing an animal can't make worshippers perfect. And therefore, sacrifices have to be made over and over again. And that's a thought that he picks up again in verse 11. Far from dealing with feelings of guilt... The repetition of sacrifice just keeps on reminding people, rubbing their noses in their sin and guilt and how far from God they are. Because the problem is that the blood of animals can't take away sins, he tells us in verse 4. It could purify, verse 23, and it could sanctify, Verse 13, but it can't remove sin. So the relief was temporary and incomplete. People needed more, and God desired more for them. In Romans chapter 11 and verses 26 and 27, we get a picture of how things could be better. It's on page 1138, page 1138, Romans 11, 26 and 27. 
Paul writes this, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God will remove sin. He won't just overlook it. He will take it away. Think of the people in the story that I began with and the burden on their consciences as what they've done weighs down on them. And think of that burden being lifted, not just temporarily, but forever. It's dealt with. Your conscience is clear. I've forgiven you. You are righteous in my eyes forever, is what the Lord might say to them. And our imaginations can work on where that might lead. The Old Testament sacrificial system could never have achieved this. It wasn't what the people needed, and it wasn't what God wanted for them. So in verse 5, the writer quotes the Old Testament itself on the inadequacies of that system. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. All an animal sacrifice could do was to give temporary relief from guilty feelings. And in that sense, there was enough in them to signpost people to a better solution. It told them that God had not washed his hands of the offender, So in that sense, it gave a glimpse of his forgiveness and grace. So the law, with its sacrifices and burnt offerings, was a shadow, as it says in verse 1. It was better than nothing, but it was far from perfect. So now let's think about the perfect solution, the one that sorted it. We turn to verses 5 to 14. To make a bridge between the imperfect sacrifice of the law and the perfect sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, the writer quotes Psalm 40 and verses 7 to 9. And then when he expounds it in verse 9, he makes a great deal of the order of things. First, then. First, he set aside ritualistic sacrifice Then he established God's will, namely that we should be made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. God's intention for his people had always been holiness. And unless the rituals of sacrifice had gone in the Old Testament with a sincere commitment to God's will, they fell well short the words of the psalmist are put by the writer into the mouth of Jesus himself. I have come to do your will, O God. We've seen how ineffectual the daily sacrifices of the priests were. Take a look at verse 10. In contrast to animal sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ was perfect and achieved all that God willed. We've been made holy by it because our sins have been taken away. 
And the Book of Common Prayer puts it like this. In the communion prayer, it talks about the suffering, by suffering death upon the cross for our redemption, Jesus made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. So complete is the sacrifice of Christ that there is no longer any need for burnt offerings. Once was enough. Jesus' work is done. And after he'd made the offering of himself, he sat down at the right hand of God, verse 12. That speaks of his authority. Our sins have been dealt with by the very highest authority. And then in verse 13, the writer returns to a verse from Psalm 110 that he uses many times in Hebrews. The picture of God's enemies being made into a stool on which he rests his feet as he sits upon his throne. Sin and death, the enemies of God, are now in their proper place under his feet. Verse 14 takes us further into the thought that the writer introduced in verse 10. He has made perfect those who are being made holy. And the use of tenses is important here. He has made perfect is in the perfect tense. It's a past action that has present results. Despite our imperfection, God has already counted us perfect because of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. We have been made fit by God for a relationship with God. But his plan is for more than just an imputed and attributed perfection. His plan for us is that we should actually come to live holy lives. For the gap between what he's declared at us, sorry, for the gap between what he's declared us to be and the way we live to become smaller and smaller. So in this verse, there's a completed action. He has counted us holy. And there's a continuing action. He is making us holy so that we become what we are. So let's think now about living out that relationship with God. And with the old covenant gone and its horrible and ineffectual sacrificial system gone with it, a new covenant is needed. And now the writer introduces the Holy Spirit as the one who testifies to this covenant. What will it look like? Since chapter 8, he's been expounding Jeremiah 31 and verses 31 to 34. Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would lead people into all truth. And here we see the truth of Jeremiah's prophecy. How will this holiness, this perfection that God has attributed to his people, 
turn into holiness of life. It'll be by a new kind of relationship with God, a relationship in which forgiveness is assured and in which people know in their inner being what God wants from them and people wanting to be holy. This is the true context in which to think about holiness. We seek to be holy not in order to be forgiven, but because we have been forgiven. Which phrase elicits the most positive response? You must or you can. Think back to our friends who fell out in the supermarket car park. What would be the most likely way for their friendship to be restored? Perhaps the one who now knows himself to be forgiven by God could take the plunge and tell the other that he's sorry that they've fallen out. It's from the security of forgiveness that people grow into holy living. All of this is the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. Before, if the people of God did his will, it was because they knew they should. But most of the time, they disobeyed. Jeremiah longed for the time when God's people would want to please him out of love and thankfulness. But as we know, Christians still sin. The road to holiness isn't an easy one. And a good many Christian people don't seem to have the joy and freedom that you might hope to find amongst people who believe in the forgiveness of sins. I wonder how you felt when you heard the words in verse 2 about no longer feeling guilty for our sins. Maybe those words jarred a bit against your experience. Add to that all the talk about being perfect, and it's possible that there are people here feeling anything but secure in God. Maybe we slip into thinking that we have to be perfect and have no guilty feelings in order to be acceptable to God. Many of us have a kind of script that goes on, I'm only lovable if. Now, this doesn't mean that we should ignore a conscience that is troubling us. If we sin, our conscience will give us feelings of guilt. The Holy Spirit is convicting us. And when we sin, we should feel burdened and confess it to God, and learn to apologize to other people if they've been affected. Verse 2 doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a troubled conscience when we've done wrong. But the burden of sin shouldn't, in and of itself, cause us to question our relationship with God. We're still Christians, even when we're not acting on Christian principles. When we sin... We're not cut off from a relationship with God. He still counts us as perfect. And the Holy Spirit still dwells within us. We're still being made holy. 
Many Christians find it difficult to trust that God accepts them and is at work in them to make them holy. If that's you, why not ask for prayer? You can ask Alan or me to pray with you after the service or one of the people around you. Why not make this evening the time when you get that clear in your mind and in your heart by bringing it to God in prayer. The greatest message this passage to the Hebrews conveys to us is the certainty of forgiveness. Certainty because forgiveness depends only on the superior sacrifice of Christ. He has done all that is necessary for us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Almighty God, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Help us to know the reality of your forgiveness. Its height and breadth and depth and length. come to the joy of people who know themselves to be forgiven. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.